It's just the way that I'm wired because I'm a very methodical and, and systematic thinker, and I like to be prepared. And so when, when we finish a, studying a book or we complete a series, the next series, I'm always trying to decipher, okay, God, how, where does that lead us to? In other words, like, it's a bit how I lead in our singing of just a connectedness from songs to the next. I, I just do kind of naturally the same thing. But for Ezra and Nehemiah, I just felt like we were to study Ezra and Nehemiah. And I didn't have a sense particularly as to how it connected to where we've been. Maybe it won't, but nonetheless, we are going to grow and we're going to mature together. So what I want to do today is um, I'm going to begin before we actually open to the book. You can open and get ready if you'd like. But before I actually read, beginning in Ezra chapter 1, which is the which is the chapter that I'm going to um, cover this morning. I want to just speak a bit about the, the backdrop and give some context and history for Ezra and Nehemiah because they're very cool. And I think that we have to begin by understanding that there are some tremendous benefits, church, that we have to studying Old Testament scripture from a New Testament perspective. And that in itself is very important to always maintain the understanding of that we stand now in the culmination of what the Old Testament individuals, prophets, believers, Christ followers anticipated and looked towards. And so the, the first and foremost is that very thing, that the benefit that we have of studying the Old Testament is that it comes from a New Testament perspective. All the symbolism, the foreshadowing, all of the absolute explicit anticipation that was in the prophecies and, and shown within the rituals and the rites, et cetera, et cetera, all of those things. Now we understand that they pointed to the Christ and we can look back at that moment of Christ's coming in the cross itself. But there's also another benefit that I think that we also need to recognize in which we receive, which I think is a significant reason as to why we need to study Old Testament scripture and Old Testament literature. And that is, it is that it builds and it develops regularly our biblical theology. Do you guys know what biblical theology is by and large? Yes. Biblical theology is essentially how the old and the new come together. It's understanding the, 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 inter, the interwoven aspects the threads, if you will, of redemption and how they are connected one to the next, from one book to the next, from one record to the next, not just in the Old Testament, which is Old Testament theology, and not just the New Testament, but the old and the new together. So in other words, what we're doing is we're building a complete and holistic understanding of what, who God is, what God purposes, how God acts, who we are as his people, Etc. 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 In all the ways that theology is understood, from the person of God to the work that He did through Jesus Christ, and so we build a biblical theology when we study not just New Testament. And just curious, and listen, this is, and and I and I'll be honest with you as well. I'm curious by a show of hands, how many of you in the past have been rather gun shy to jump into Old Testament, or maybe have tried to study the Old Testament and just felt like, ah. I don't think I can get through it. Anybody felt like that before? I have. I've come across, none, boy, you guys over here. Who wants to teach this morning? Come on up here. I, I, there's, I mean, there's moments because what happens is, is what I'm talking about. We haven't built up our, our rich biblical theology to actually understand 
all that is in the Old Testament in light of the New. So when we get to study books as we're about to, we are taking pieces of this very large puzzle and we're placing them together but in relationship to one another, which creates a more comprehensive and a robust picture of God's plan, God's purpose, his mercy, the person of Christ, of course, his grace, God's sovereignty, his providence, more and more and more and more. So, and thirdly, as a benefit of the old study, a healthy biblical theology, it also, and listen, I think this is really important, church, that it builds a confidence in us when we study Old Testament scripture, and we understand it in light of new covenant truth, it builds within us a confidence that all of scripture is given to us for life and for godliness, for our benefit, for the building up of ourselves unto holiness. As wonderful as the epistles are, and as absolutely significant, of course, as the gospels are to reveal who Christ is, the Old Testament is full of lessons and important, important examples that will build us and will teach us and will train us. So what I want to do, as I said, is I'm going to begin with a bit of of context and backdrop to help build up our whole Bible theology and to give us a, I feel like what will be a strong beginning point as we launch into these next couple of months because we're going to study through Ezra and we're going to study through Nehemiah together. So these two books in particular unlike any other books within the Bible, have a very fascinating historical placement as well as an interesting and unique interconnectedness with each other that other, and with with some other books that are surrounding it that other books don't have within the Old Testament. So chronologically speaking, Ezra and Nehemiah occur in the same time as the book of Esther. So we're familiar, Esther just sits right there with those two, As, as also does Haggai, And Zechariah, the two minor prophets who are going to be prophesying to the returning exiles in the first six chapters of Ezra. And it's actually interestingly thought that Esther's efforts and the favor that she won with the king of Persia as the queen. You know the the story of Esther, right? She's She's a Jew. She's chosen. She becomes the queen of Persia. It's thought that Esther's favor with the king was actually... Um, a big part in allowing Ezra to return back to Jerusalem to give the efforts of restoring the law to the people. So there's these, we want to read the Bible chronologically, right? We want to open it and we want to read Genesis to Revelation, but we don't actually get that. And God in his wisdom, as as the spirit of God inspired those who would assemble the canon of scripture, have done it in such a way that that now what we have to do is we've got to get past the surface level church and we've got to dig and peel back those layers and actually see the excitement and the beauty that lies within the Old Testament. So really fascinating, Ezra and Nehemiah, the same time frame. it's going to cover a little bit over 100 years. And yet in that, we've got Esther who's working in the background and then we've got Haggai and we've got Zechariah who are going to be prophesying. And so that's a little bit of the surrounding history in the context of what's happening. It's thought that the author of Ezra and Nehemiah would be one individual. That's now a a rather common thought and agreement amongst biblical scholars. And it's also possible that the author of Ezra and Nehemiah was also the author of the Chronicles. And in fact, if you look at 2 Chronicles, it's almost verbatim how 2 Chronicles ends and Ezra opens. 
So Second Chronicles basically repeats the first three, or Ezra repeats the last three verses of Second Chronicles. So it's possible that that is the author um, of Ezra and of Nehemiah. However, I would say, church, that regardless of their separation within the canon, because um, actually also, I don't think I mentioned it, but historically speaking, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. And it wasn't until third century, it's, it's thought that maybe Origen separated the two. So it was always just understood as Ezra, Nehemiah together, written by the one individual, and then it's separated. But regardless of its separation, I think that what we can understand is that their connectedness between their theology and the historical account is, um, is rather cohesive between the two. And if nothing else, I would say that just for our own hearts, that we would find encouragement and faith in seeing the continuity of God's word. And I, I was just praying that this week, that as we set out together on this, that we would see that these are not, as I said last week, these aren't just individual stories that happen in a historical vacuum, but they are recordings and they're records of redemptive happenings according to the sovereignty of God that are connected to one another that are bringing about the purposes of God within the history of creation. And so we can find joy and we can find excitement and we can find confidence and faith knowing again that all of scripture is for not only our benefit, but is for the beauty of the revelation of God and his ways and his purposes. So I'm praying for that for us as we set out into that. So Ezra, Nehemiah is written against a backdrop of the rise and the fall of a great nation. I apologize if you can't see this far in the back, but I just thought I would put that up because it's also helpful. That is a chronological time frame. The books are on the bottom. What's happening historically to the people of Israel are found on the top. And so up to this point in history, we see, or we have seen up to the point of Ezra, if you will, we've seen the rise and fall of a nation. It began with one man in Abraham, and it's going to grow into a great people. And through exile, it's going to be reduced into a remnant. It's just barely making it. But yet, it's God's promise, and it's God's providence that is going to carry this people through. And so Genesis ends with Jacob, who is now Israel, as God renames him, Abraham's grandson, entering into Egypt out of the obedience of God calling Israel and his family, which as you remember, Joseph being one of his sons, being positioned in Egypt, right? We all know the story. So God says to, God says to Israel, take your family, go to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation in the land of Egypt. And so for 400 years, that was essentially what took place. They grew, they prospered, they found favor, but as we know, eventually, they were met with disfavor as their growth and their prosperity as a people and as a, as a nation, if you will, became a source of fear and insecurity to the then Pharaoh, whose heart, what does it say? God hardened Pharaoh's heart towards the people of Israel. And what happens? He enslaves Israel, right? And, he, and then, then we have this period, but God leads these people from slavery into a period of time where he would do something absolutely significant among them. Over the next 50 years after exile, God would identify them explicitly as separate unto him, marking them as his own people and his possession. 
And it's here in this time of the exodus and their entrance into the promised land that he's going to give them his law by which they're to live righteously and obediently. He's going to give them the tabernacle that he would dwell among them. He's going to give to them their ceremonies and their rituals would allow, that would allow for them to remain righteous and separate and close to himself while he simultaneously is leading them towards the land that he had promised to who? Abraham. So he's promised this to Abraham and he's faithfully seeing his promise through. But interestingly, within this same time period here, before the patriarchal reign of the kings, within this time period of the exodus and taking of the land, we see, um, we see this cycle that presents itself, a pattern, if you will, that emerges and it's going to continue throughout the remainder of the Old Testament all the way to the very end. And that pattern is this, is that God will call his people to the obedience of his righteous law. His people would obey for a time, but then would ultimately rebel against God in sin, at which point he would bring judgment upon their sin and their disobedience. They would cry out for help. They would repent. They would promise their fidelity to him once again, he would answer their cries in mercy, and then we would see the cycle start again. And then his people would live, and then they would rebel, and et cetera, et cetera. And it would continue on all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. And so then the nation of Israel settles in the land that God gives to them, and so begins the era of the kings, of, of Saul, of David, of Solomon, and then during this time, the people's obedience and the dedication to the Lord, it would, it would wane and it would waver as it has always done within that pattern. And ultimately, church, in this, in this larger gesture of truth, Israel would reject their kings given to them by God as their kings rejected God. And he would bring them into a time of which it was the splitting of the nation of Israel into two, as we can see somewhere on there, the dates aren't important. I'm just wanting to give us, again, this interconnected picture of, of redemption of God's providence and within the history of his people. And so the, the nation of Israel splits. Ten tribes go to the northern kingdom of Israel, two tribes to the southern kingdom. And it says it's recorded in Kings that throughout the, the entirety of the northern kingdom, that there was not a single king who did not do evil in the sight of God. Throughout the entire history of the northern kingdom. And as I said last week, as we talked about Hezekiah, there was, I apologize, I'm just watching somebody navigate vehicles. In Hezekiah, um, I'm sorry guys, as I said last week, that within the southern kingdom of Judah, there was, there was a bit of those kings who would reform and do right, and there was kings who would rebel and do evil in the sight of God. And Judah lasts for about 100 years longer. Israel falls to Assyria in the north, and shortly, about 100 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah would also succumb to, but this time not Assyria, but to Babylon. And we know the story. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and just exports many. And here Jeremiah says, and he actually speaks about the 70 years of exile that the nation of Israel would experience. And this brings us now to this point of here we are today, 
right here, kind of at the very end, that is where we enter into Ezra. So I wanted to share with you guys this morning, I thought there would, um, you're familiar with, familiar with the Bible Project? They've got those really wonderful videos that just present um, such a concise and excellent overview. And so I want to share that with us here this morning and let that be a bit of our introduction now that we've kind of covered the history up to this point, let that be our introduction to these two books. So um, let's watch it. It's about six minutes and do I have it? Oh, thanks so much. I think this is it right here. I think this is it right here. Yes. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem and he offers resources and support and then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts which they then overcome but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices, and later the temple itself. The foundation laying ceremony, and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. 
And this, of course, generates a conflict, which Zerubbabel overcomes, but it's very strange because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together, along with all of the nations, to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment, to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorce their wives, the story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exile should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. Which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government. And when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives them an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, that people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage. They have to build the city with armed guards to protect them. We keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration over the temple, the walls of Jerusalem. And we're thinking, this could be the turning point, but it's not. 
The book ends on a huge downer. <laughs> Nehemiah tours around Spoiler the city, alert. and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up. He's pulling out their hair and he's yelling, obey the commands of the Torah. And his final words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried and the book ends. I mean, it's very strange, but we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's good, eh? And that concludes our series. <laughs> yeah. Tell your friends. <laughs> no, those are, they're just done so well. Because, I, again, and, and all of this is, it's just building, as I've been saying, it, it builds towards this picture of how it all relates to each other. That these are not just happenstance moments within history where God was somehow just kind of responding it's, no, I mean, this, this is God's sovereign providence that's working through all of these for a reason and for a purpose. And now it's, it's our joy and our responsibility to kind of dig in and determine and find what is that purpose and what is God speaking to his people. So it's, it's, it's here that Ezra begins within history. And before I read the text, I just want to say, and don't worry, I'm, I'm going to land here, you know, in a relatively concise moment. Um, there's two things that I want to draw our attention to through what I have said and through what was said within these videos. And I think they're going to serve as our theological focus in this morning's introduction to Ezra. What we can learn and, and what we can take away from even just the little that I have said thus far. First is this, not once through what I said nor this video that we just heard, do we see a moment within the entire 1,500 years period where God was not working in and through the circumstances of his people? Not one moment. Was there a moment, there, there was not one moment that God was not working on behalf of his people, whether it was in their efforts of obedience, whether it was their failings, and we didn't even touch a fraction, Right? of that 1,500-year period. I just gave us the broad steps through it. Whether it was the long periods of blessing or even the long periods of rebellion and judgment, 
Church, God was providentially at work in each and every moment, ensuring that his plan for humanity, that his plan for redemption, and that his plan for his people would certainly come to pass in every single moment. And the second theological truth that we can take away from thus far is that secondary to this primary plot of the providence of God, we also see that what holds all of it together, the glue of of this Old Testament narrative, is God's unwavering faithfulness to his promises. His unwavering faithfulness to his promises, reiterated over and over from generation to generation, from one to the next, so that why? What was the reason that God reiterated his promises from one generation to the another? It was that so that each generation would continue in faithfulness and in perseverance. As a reminder, this is what I swore to your fathers. This is what I have promised will come to pass so that at each generation they would renew their commitment to the Lord, that they would renew their commitment to obedience and to following him uh, diligently and to pursuing his righteousness from generation to generation. His promise of place. He talks about the land that I swore to your fathers. His promise of possession for his people. That you will be my people, he says. And his promise of provision. He talks about the land that he would bring him into. The land of, of milk and honey. That which was good and that which was need, they would need for their sustenance. Those were the promises that he reiterated from generation to generation. And church, I just had a sense this morning as I was preparing this week, I wanted to remind us that this is our God today. This is the God that we follow. It's the same God of the Old Testament, the one whom we love and the one whom we worship and the one whom we pursue. His promises, church, remain the same. His ways remain the same. His aim remains the same. He is the one with whom there is no variation No shadow of his turning, the New Testament tells us. His aim that he would be a God to his people, that they would be the treasured possession unto him, within whom he would show his might and his power and his mercy and his grace and compassion and on and on for the rest of creation. That has always been his aim and that is still his aim today. So let's read Ezra chapter one and taking those two truths, I'm just going to speak of a couple of things that we see here now in the beginning of this book. Ezra chapter one, verses one through 11, the proclamation of Cyrus in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. 
And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Verse five, then rose up the heads of the father's house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and he placed in the, and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels, all the vessels of gold and of silver counted up to 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And it's not surprisingly then, from what I said a moment ago, straight away in verse one, we're presented with two things. That God is faithful to accomplish his word and that God is providentially at work. That the word of the Lord might be fulfilled, it says. That the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. We can read these verses and all the rest of scripture for that matter and simply think that it was man's will to do this and it was man's will to do that or it's man's choice and God simply responds to man's choice as though he's some form of like a cosmic goalkeeper doing his best to keep our shots from entering into the net. Or we can read these verses and the rest of scripture for what they truly are, examples of an omnipotent and sovereign God working through his creation perfectly and always in accordance with his perfect will. So these two themes, they're going to carry on throughout the books as we study them, and we'll see them come up time and time again, the providence of God and the God's faithfulness to his promises, which I was thinking it leads us to ask the same question that the, the narrator on the video asked when he ended, and he says, what is God doing or what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises? And I was thinking, what a, what a cogent question that is for us today to ask ourselves, what is God going to do to fulfill his covenant promise? And we find ourselves positioned almost just like the people in the Old Testament, looking and longing and waiting. Sometimes I think that just because we live on this side of Christ's death and resurrection, that we think that God was finished with his creation. But as we know, of course, that he's not. His goal is still that through faith in, his, in the glorious work of Christ, those whom the Old Testament spoke of and po pointed towards, that many sons and many daughters would come to know him. That is what God is about today. That is what God is doing in the renewal of his covenant promise with his people. And so I just want to take these two truths, his, prom his promises and his providence, and I want to just speak on them momentarily as for us and how we can understand them and how it impacts our lives today, some 2,600 
or so years later from the moment of Ezra, we still find God doing the same work and about the same business. And so the providence of God is this. It can be defined. Providence for God to act providentially means that he's continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. And number two, that he cooperates with created things in every direction, sorry, in every action directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do and directs them to fulfill his purposes. That's taken from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology and his definition of what providence is. And it's such an excellent summary of what it is. Through this view of God...